everybody. Welcome to the Radical Candor Podcast. I'm Kim Scott, co-founder of Radical Candor and Just Work. And I'm Jason Rosoff, CEO and co-founder of Radical Candor. And I'm Amy Sandler, your host for the Radical Candor Podcast. Today we're talking about how to practice Radical Candor with remote teams. So we've talked about this a little bit on other episodes, but recently we've been receiving a lot of questions about how to actually build relationships and give feedback to and from remote workers. You might not know both Radical Candor and our sister company, Just Work. We have always been entirely remote, so we can talk about what works for us as well as what the latest research says. So a poll from Gallup reveals that some of the things that cause a high rate of burnout among remote workers is feeling detached from your team your organizational culture, and really just feeling lonely and isolated. Jason, how does that land for you when you hear that? I can strongly empathize with that. I think I work very well sort of in a solitary remote environment. And every once in a while, I look up and realize that I'm entirely alone and wish I was more connected to the people that I enjoy working with so much. And I think we hear this a lot from folks who first made the transition from in-person to remote over the last year. I think there's been a lot of people who, as they made that change, they were trying to replicate the things that they had when they were in person, which really just doesn't work. You need to find some new ways of working and collaborating together in order to create a similar sense of connection. Something that we have done very consistently, and we just did it before we started recording this podcast, is we usually take a few minutes at the beginning of every meeting just to check in with each other. That's never something that we really did when we were in person. Usually that was something that happened sort of at the lunch table or someplace that there's Mm -hmm. another context where that could happen. Just as a small example, uh, if you try to have the same exact structure and kind of meeting that you would if you were in person, I think it's not going to build the same sense of connection when you're remote. So we had one person uh, actually write into us and say that they've been reading the book and they love it. A lot of great stories and management topics. However, a lot of the advice we offer is face-to-face. So what advice and principles would we offer for people who are transitioning from working in the office to working from home? Specifically, when they're thinking about radical candor, they're saying, well, I'm having now that we're working remotely, I'm having to schedule every single meeting that we have. So I, I think we can help there. I think there are some other ways to do it. Well, I thought it was important, Kim, to mention in the book, you share a lot about these kind of impromptu walking together after a meeting. And I feel like that was what Jason was talking about. Like if we're doing a workshop, people are having coffee, they're going to the restroom. For you, Kim, a lot of your stories were sort of that walk back to the office after the meeting. So I'm really curious, like, how do you think about those serendipitous moments or those impromptu moments in in a remote setting? Yeah, well, I mean, I am one of those people who actually loves working remotely. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you why it's actually easier remotely than it was in person, <laughs> at least for me. So one of the things that always got in the way of the impromptu t- two-minute conversation for me in the before times was we'd have a meeting, and then I would walk up to someone after the meeting and say, do you want to go get a cup of coffee or do you want to walk back to my office with me? And pretty soon that was known as like the coffee of doom, you know? <laughs> I think that's how Jason says he lost his love of coffee from a lot of those. It's back. <laughs> yeah. One of the biggest obstacles for me in the impromptu two-minute conversation was saying, will you walk back to my mm-hmm. or 
to my office with me or will you go get a cup of coffee with me? So I learned to send a quick text. Can we chat after the meeting? And then the person would come get me and then it didn't create this audience effect. Now that we are working remotely, it's even easier to send a quick text, private chat to someone and say, can we chat for a couple of minutes in, you know, after this meeting? Scheduling meetings is hard. Yes, it's a little bit more difficult to find those impromptu moments now in some ways, but in some ways it's actually easier to find those impromptu moments now, especially if you leave a little slack time between meetings. So one of the most important things in the before times in the real world and also in this virtual world is leaving you know, five, 10 minutes at least in between meetings so that you can go to the bathroom, get a cup of water, get a cup of tea and reach out and probably not all three at the same time, hopefully <laughs> reach out and, uh, and chat with people in between meetings. You mentioned about um, the reaching out by text. And I feel like you said, actually, before the meeting, can we connect after the meeting or you do it right after the meeting? And what was coming up for me as you were saying that was the psychological difference of someone getting the text, maybe from their boss right after the meeting can we check in on that versus teeing it up before the meeting? Like, yes. oh, we're going to do it. I just, in my negativity bias, mine was like, oh, if I get it right after I read, that was a disaster. Whereas I, if I knew it was coming, it was like, oh, let's check in after the meeting and see how that went. Yeah, but maybe something happened during the meeting that prompted me to want to talk to you, at which point I would have to send the text after. <laughs> Uh, and and also, you know, it's the total opposite for other people. Brandy would right. rather have it at the end of the meeting, I'm guessing, from a chat she just sent. See how rich this communication medium is when we're, right. when we're all in different places? You know, as with all things, there's no absolute answers in how to, how to do this. It, good communication, whether it's in-person communication or text communication, gets measured at the listener's ear. So now I know that... Amy, if I want to chat with you, I'd, I'm better off s saying it at the beginning of the meeting, whereas Brandy, I'm better off saying it at the end of the meeting. And I can, I can flex, you know, that's not that, that I, I can follow those instructions. Yeah. And I would also just offer that it's important to be intentional about this. And one thing that I'm very aware of is that I go out of my way not to always ping someone only when something has gone wrong. Like I, I will make an effort to ping, ping folks when things have gone right. Also, Same, similar to you, Kim, I, I, I found that in the before times when I had a much larger team, there was definitely differences of perspective. There were definitely people who are on both ends of the spectrum uh, where some people would even prefer if I was going to send them a note to say, Hey, do you have a minute to check in? I noticed something small in the meeting that I think we could like, we could learn from. They would prefer me to say exactly what I was thinking about checking in on. Some folks were like, totally fine. Like, let, hey, do you have a, a minute? That was like great for them. And other folks would much prefer that I set up some time to talk to them. Like they actually said, you know, I, I prefer to have um, a heads up and some time to process. But like, to your point, these are not hard things to learn, right? <laughs> like it's actually only takes a minute to have a conversation with somebody and say, what is the best way for me to approach this? And I do think this is a place where managers in particular have a tendency to sort of overcomplicate. They're trying to create a system as opposed to saying, you know, I need to keep track of about 10 people's preferences for how to do this. I actually kept track of those things in a, I had a Trello board back in the day of like, everybody and sort of like their key preferences. 
And that was it. You could do it, use a spreadsheet too, like however it works for you, but it was actually really easy to keep track of those things. And so I'd encourage people to do that, like ask the question, what is the best way for me to approach you if I have feedback or if I have something that I want to add a perspective or a thought that I want to share after a conversation. And also, you know, by the same token, let people know what the best way to approach you is. Like best way to do it for me is to get a two by four and hit me over the head right in the moment. So... And to be clear, you mean not a grid, a two-by-two two grid, a literal two-by-four. Two, yes, uh, yes, <laughs> a, a piece of wood. Yeah. <laughs> Which is harder now in these virtual times. Yeah, to... yeah, it is harder. It brings us to another point. Like, I think one of the things, at least for me, with remote work, and, and in general with this period of quarantine, which hopefully we're going to emerge from, but time has lost its meaning. And so it is really important to check in with people when they're remote more often and, and maybe not have quite such long conversations. So, for example, right out of college, I worked in Moscow in Russia for a man who was in New York. And he would pick up the phone as soon as he woke up. Before he, I always knew what time he woke up every day because he would call me right away. He was, his voice would be kind of scratchy and he was, but he just wanted to check in because of the time zone. That's why he, he did it. And, and he did it at the time that was convenient for him and easy for him. And it wasn't a planned call. If I couldn't take the call, that was okay too. Like the flexibility. One of the things that is stressful about remote work is having to adapt your schedule to someone else's schedule, especially in a boss-employee relationship. So it's got to be okay for the employee not to take the call. That's got to be, if you're going to have these frequent check-ins, that's really, really important. And that was really helpful. The, the other thing I would say I have learned over the past year and a half is that, yes, as a general rule, in-person communication is sort of easier and more effective than uh, over video chat or the phone. However, there are some relations for which in-person communication is more important than, like it is much more important. I mean, I love you all dearly, but it is much more important for me to be in person with my children and my husband than it is for me to be in person with you all. And I think sort of acknowledging people's different needs. It occurred to me the other day that Nobody who I work with has kids. I don't know how that happened. But like I try to be more aware of the, the different perspectives that we have depending on our personal situations. I think we've done a pretty good job accommodating each other's different needs. Yeah, something that's occurring to me as we're talking about this like thematically is that we're talking about explicitness versus implicitness in the way that we structure our communication. And if you have been reading anything about the shift to remote, and especially now about the shift back to being in the office, I think the thing that is undermining trust and confidence is the lack of explicitness in the way that we are approaching both the transition toward remote work and now the transition to either being back in the office or to some sort of hybrid arrangement. People are really frustrated by the way that their organizations and their managers have failed to be explicit with them about A, what the goal is, what the expectations are, and B, how they're going to know if they're actually meeting those goals and expectations. And I do think that that is a theme that I have noticed over, you know, the last 15 years where I've worked 
either completely remotely or in a hybrid world where some people were in the office together and some people were remote, was that it did take some effort to be more explicit about how we planned to manage things and what the expectations were. But that benefited everyone. It didn't just benefit people who were remote. It benefited people in the office as well, right? Like the communication preferences that I'm talking about, you know, some of my the people who are on my team were remote, but some of them were in the office. And gathering that information for everybody made everybody better off. I think this is almost like a new a new sort of diversity issue cuz different people have different needs at different times. And I think that when leaders run into trouble is when they say everybody must be remote or everybody must be in person. That's not going to work for everybody. And so, yes, it is harder to be flexible, create a hype, but it's not impossible. It is absolutely not impossible. Having managed global teams in which some people worked from their homes and other people worked in offices, but it was all, people were all scattered all over the world in all different kinds of situations. It's possible to manage it, but it it takes, takes a little extra effort for sure. Yeah. You know, Kim, one of the things that you shared at the beginning of Radical Candor that always stuck with me was that relationships don't scale, but culture does. And really investing in these one-on-one relationships and based on that is really understanding what the specific people on your team, what each of them wants. And Jason, as you were talking about the need for explicitness, for me, it feels a lot like this definition that we have gotten recently from a Harvard Business School professor, Neely, around two types of trust. One being cognitive trust, where you see others as dependable and reliable, I think based very much on a clear understanding of what is expected of them, you know, making those explicit roles and responsibilities explicit, and then emotional trust, which is that managers and leaders care about the folks working for them personally, which, you know, is obviously foundational to radical candor. And I think both of those things are foundational to radical candor. The challenge directly, is it really clear what is expected of me? And Professor Neely says that cognitive trust can be conferred right away, that people can really show up as dependable and accountable, but emotional trust takes time. So let's, let's go into that a little bit. What Where do you think folks can learn about the development of emotional trust from what we've seen from practicing radical candor? My reaction to that was like, I think those two things for some people are wrapped up together, actually. I think that for some people, one way that you can show that you care is to be dependable, (laughs) like to Mm -hmm. be reliable. And as a person who highly values reliability, like I hold myself to a very high standard of of sort of integrity and reliability, this like ability to, for you all to believe what I say. Mm-hmm. Um, that is very important to me personally. I, I, I know that is helpful to you, but it is important to me. I will say that when people seem unreliable, I am very unlikely to offer them to, to confer to them emotional, like emotional trust <laughs> because it's sort of like being around a skittish animal. You know what I'm saying? Where you, you don't quite know like how the person is going to react in a given situation. And that makes it very hard for me to, to infer from their behavior care because I'm always worried that they're going to react in some unpredictable way. So I see them like potentially as wrapped up with each other, but it kind of makes me think of uh, the scarf model a little bit, Amy, mm-hmm. like what David Rock's model about like what we value, what motivates us or what makes us feel 
safe and connected. And for some people, certainty is incredibly important. But for other people, autonomy is much more important. A concrete example of this is I also, in addition to sort of reliability, also highly value autonomy, which is one thing that Kim is great at giving to me, uh, is lots and lots of autonomy. But I had this situation a couple of jobs ago where I had a manager who I gave this big hairy project to uh, and said, I believe in you. You're totally capable of doing this. I gave her this project in exactly the way that I would have liked it given to me. And then about a week later, she came into my, my office clearly exhausted. Like it looked like she hadn't slept. And she said, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly stressed out. I understand why you did this. I know this is a sign of trust, but I feel like you've set me adrift uh, on a boat with no supplies, basically. Like, I, I feel like you have abandoned me to this task that I really don't know what to do with. What I did not see was that in this particular case, she she needed more from me. Like, she needed additional context and support in order to feel like she was going to be set up for success. And so what was really important in that moment was that I heard her and I adjusted my approach that she told me like, this is what I need. And from my perspective, that is the foundation of reliability is not that you never make a mistake. It's not that you, you never sort of get it wrong. It's that when you do get it wrong, you are always willing to like, to accept address respond to what is actually needed. And I think that those moments are the moments that really build care. We hear from clients kind of frequently that they get done with a radical candor workshop and they're sort of afraid to get it wrong. Whereas what we're saying is like, no, you're going to get it wrong. What matters far more than getting it right all the time is that when you do get it wrong, that you're open, that you're willing to reconsider your approach or you're open to the possibility of doing it another way. So once again, we're seeing that there's not an absolute definition of what an absentee manager or a micromanager or a thought partner is, that you've got to adjust to the needs of the and desires of the employee. I want to go back to this issue of trust and sort of reliability trust, maybe we'll call it cognitive, well, I guess Professor Neely calls it cognitive trust and emotional trust. And I agree with you, Jason. I think the two are highly interconnected. One of the things I think is in radical candor, although maybe I cut it out. At one point, it was in a draft of radical candor, is something that one of my coaches at Google, Fred Kaufman, taught us. He would draw this chart of infinite damage to your relationship. On the horizontal axis was time, and on the vertical axis was damage to your relationship. And if you told somebody that you weren't going to deliver something to them that they had promised early, it did very little damage to your relationship. And then there was this sort of curve way up. And if you told them after the day it was due that you weren't going to get it done, then you do infinite damage to your relationship. That's an example of how cognitive trust really can, for a lot of people, make it difficult to rely on you and therefore to trust you. However, I would say that I have found there are some people who I work with who are not reliable. I know they're not going to get their stuff done on time. (laughs) And usually these are creative types. And I'm very compassionate with that lack of reliability because like when I start writing a book, I always think it'll, when I started writing Radical Candor, for example, I was certain I could do it in three months and it took me four years. There's some types of work that just aren't predictable. And so trying to hold someone to a deadline is not actually very helpful. And in fact, allowing them 
some, when I was working at Apple, like I could have written radical candor, but nobody would have had four years worth of patience in a corporate setting kind of thing. So I think that especially when the work is unpredictable and maybe you know, some might say unreliable. That's where the emotional trust is really important. Because if I'm working with a creative person and I know they really care about the project and that they care about our relationship, then it's much easier for me to forgive a certain amount of unreliability. Like they don't respond to my email. They can't respond to all my emails because they're busy doing this work that would get destroyed by too much time in email. To go yeah. back to the um, the diagram that you were mentioning, which is really interesting around sort of time and, and the relationship. And I wonder what is it that prohibits or inhibits people from from speaking up. You know, you think about psychological safety and feeling okay saying, hey, I'm running late. I'm really curious, like why, especially in remote times, what what is it that a leader can do to make it safer for people to feel like they can say, I'm running behind? Talked about this before, but one of the really important things in all times, but especially in, in times of crisis, like the ones we've been living through, is the proactive forbearance list. Like make it not, don't just make it safe for people to say, no, I'm not going to do that, but make it expected for people to tell you, and more importantly than for them to tell you, but for them to tell their peers who are relying on their, because th- these are you know, usually we're doing collaborative work. And so if I don't get something done, then that's going to impact you and and Jason, Amy. And so I want mm-hmm. the sooner I tell you that I'm not going to get it done, the better, the more you can adjust your work. And so this is why I think creating an environment, and, and we did this at the beginning of quarantine. We're like, okay, what are the things we're going to quit doing so that we have time to do the things that we have to do to take care of ourselves because there's there was like a huge cognitive load just of understanding what was going on in the world. And so I think that is really important, being real clear on what we're not going to do as well as what we're going to do. And I think, I mean, I mean, at least in my experience, the reason why I wait too long to tell someone, the reason why I procrastinate in telling you and Jason that I'm actually not going to do that thing is the same reason why we don't give feedback. I'm afraid you're going to get mad and mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't want you to get mad. And so it's like that, reluct- even though I know at a rational level that you're going to be, that I'm going to do infinite damage to our relationship <laughs> if I wait too long. That's one of the reasons why I thought Fred Kaufman's diagram was so helpful because for me, at least if I can draw it on a two by two, I can change my behavior more easily. Like if I know, if I can imagine that diagram and, and the infinite damage I'm going to do to our relationship in the long run by delaying this painful conversation in which I have to tell you, no, I'm not going to do that thing, then then it gives me the little burst of courage I need to have the conversation sooner than later. It's like it's, basic procrastination. It's the t- it is, yeah, it's the two by four we need. In the two it's by two, by two. two. just a two by no, two. No, I know the the, the wooden yeah. two by four to hit you yeah, over the exactly. head to get you yeah. get you going. Yeah, Jason, any thoughts on that? I, I don't know. I, I'm actually not convinced this is universal, but I I have this experience with working with a lot of people who are very driven, very motivated, and I think that in a lot of environments where people are not aware of the damage to sort of like to trust that we do by discouraging one another from having real conversations about not just deadlines, but 
what's getting in the way. Cause I, I think one of the things that we, we've sort of been dancing around a little bit is that in the pandemic, things that got in the way didn't necessarily have to do with work. It wasn't like, Oh, I didn't get this thing that I needed on time. And so now I'm going to be late. It was actually like, I haven't been as productive as I want to, because I'm like just completely overwhelmed with what's going on. And so I'm, I'm about a week behind schedule. The proactive forbearance list, I think is like a, a sort of a way to institutionalize the idea of giving permission to ourselves, not just, not just notifying our peers or notifying our manager, but giving, giving permission to ourselves to like offer ourselves grace to say, like, I can choose not to do something and that is okay. Like that, that is going to be okay because that is the, the thing that I found that I wound up doing most often as, as a manager was, essentially loaning people some of the courage that basically saying like, I, I, it's okay. It's okay for you to do this. It's not only am I not going to get mad, but I'm actually going to actively try to support your choice. I'm going to do what I can to make sure that you don't actually do this thing. Uh, and I'm going to try to protect you also. Like uh, other people are going to want you to do this thing. They're going to add, they're going to send me an email and say, why isn't Amy doing this thing? And I'm going to say, because I believe that it's the, that's the right choice for Amy not to do this thing. And that I think is actually has been a, a, an even more obvious and critical thing over the last year, but it was important even when the context wasn't quite so heightened, like the stress of the context wasn't quite so heightened for everybody. The, that idea of relationships don't scale, but culture does. I think this is another way that managers can create a healthier culture uh, of trust and safety is when we say it's okay not to do something, recognizing that, you know, we're helping that person and other people learn that part, a successful behavior on our team is to know as clearly what you're not going to do as it is to know what you are going to do. I love that. I love that. And you did that for me at the beginning of quarantine when, when you said to me, look, I want you to be able to diagram sentences with your children, but something's got to give because I, I was not being reliable. I wasn't showing up or I was late. I think another thing I've been thinking a lot about over the last couple of days, remember that article that Adam Grant wrote about languishing? And yeah. here I, I finally was able to crystallize over the, the weekend why it bothered me. I, because I have definitely not been as productive recently as I was able to be earlier. So what am I doing? He mentioned words with friends. I find words with friends incredibly soothing. And I'm, I'm glad that Adam Grant is playing words with friends right now. I've been reading a lot of novels, but I can't read. I'm just too strung out to read. So not I don't just read novels. I sit down on my couch with a heating pad on my back and I listen to the novels my play 2048. I realize there's a million reasons why that's bad, but I find it very soothing. That is what I am doing. In the morning, instead of jumping out of bed and starting to write, I walk to the orange tree and I pick four oranges and I squeeze orange juice. And I find that incredibly healing. So I don't think what I'm doing is languishing. I think what I'm doing is healing. And I think we all need to give each other permission to heal right now, because this has been a really, and, and like I've had about as luxurious a quarantine as anyone could possibly have. And yet it's been, been upsetting and traumatizing and hard. And, uh, and so I think we need to give each other permission, not just permission, but encouragement to heal right now. Mm -hmm. Be beautifully said. And Kim, 
one thing that leapt out at me at your descriptions was, and and I mentioned this, I think in the, uh, we, we did a couple articles recently on, on Zoom fatigue and how to overcome that is around you are engaging all of your senses. So I think our, our visual senses, our cognitive senses are so sort of fried and not to mention the emotional and the trauma and the physiological trauma, but you're, you're physically squeezing an orange, you're smelling it, you're out in nature, you're lying on the bed and the heating pad and the warmth. And so I think, and again, you know, each person has to access the senses that resonate most for them. But I am aware that that's also for me, what has been very healing is lying on the floor, feeling the rug, you know, putting a little squish ball in my hands. And, and so really bringing up those other senses to nourish the parts of us that might feel really, um, that need replenishing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There was another time in my career when I was really, uh, stressed out and I spent a huge amount of time weeding, uh, in the yard, like pulling up foxtails. And, and it was incredibly, it was healing. It was not like languishing. It was healing. It was what I needed to do. So I would just encourage everybody to do what you need to do to heal. Cause this has been a rough, rough patch. We've all gone through it together. And that means don't be so obsessed by productivity. We are way too obsessed. I remember at one point I had insomnia. I had developed insomnia. The doctor that I went to gave me a list of things to do before bed. And I realized that in the name of productivity, I had outsourced all of those activities. (laughs) Like when I was driving to work, I was taking calls. I was always, always packing as much into every minute. And we just, we need to allow our minds time to wander. In space. Yeah. Jason, before we wrap, is there anything you want to share about sort of Zoom fatigue and and the video tips? I know we, we did spend some time and we can put that in the show notes recent posts that we had, but just any other tips on how folks can can connect if they can't all just lie on a faux fur rug and and breathe some fresh orange juice on how best to connect um, in the tools that we have right now. I would focus on building off what, what Kim was just saying, which is in some ways, organizations are sort of like villages, especially when you're physically co-located with one another. One of the reasons why, you know, Google created these kitchenettes on every floor was not just because they wanted to centrally locate the snacks, but because they wanted to create a space where people would run into each other in the same way that thousands of years ago, we would run into each other in a market or we'd like, we would see one another, we'd feel connected to one another. And so it's important to recognize that that was intentional, that they were creating a space that intentionally encouraged people to, to come together. As we moved to remote, I would just say that we, we have we didn't realize, and for many organizations that aren't Google, they may not, they may have copied those things without actually understanding what they were doing, right? So you may have created a kitchenette saying, oh, this is like, we're going to do what Google does because we want people to feel as comfortable here as they do at Google, not realizing the underlying sort of social and psychological value of those spaces. I think as we move to a world where we're more hybrid, um, meaning we have some people in person, some people remote, I actually think that's the toughest situation to create a sense of community because there are two entirely different paradigms in terms of in in which people interact with each other. And so we need to create space for connection. So something we did at Khan Academy that was really effective is we had tea time. 
essentially what we do is we had those really big sort of video screens and so like a meeting room with a video screen and we would have tea time where we just turn on the screen and anybody who is remote would check into that room and anybody in person could go grab a cup of tea and sit in that room and actually have a cup of tea with one another. We created a space and a time explicitly for that. And at first it felt kind of weird and a little bit forced because we were used to running into each other at the tea you know, the teapot or the coffee machine. But after a while, it was actually really nice to say, oh, like there's a half hour break coming up. I can grab my tea then and I can actually see a bunch of my coworkers who I don't see all the time. But again, it's that like explicit intention to create a space for connection. I love that tea time. It's so much better. I mean, at Google, they actually intentionally made the lunch lines long to do, which was not, uh, as someone who is always behind, not ideal. At, At Apple, they intentionally created these long walks to the bathroom. And as someone who has to pee all the time, that was really not a good way to get me to bump into people. (laughs) <laughs> I'd love so, to talk, but there's no time. really a yeah. lot nicer way to do it. Yeah. And I think a, a virtual version of that is, you know, you can have a remote co-working Zoom room if you thrive on working with other people. So like, like I do. So for example, Brandy and I, if we're working on a project together, we'll have the Zoom open. If we want to turn the video off, we will. We just know there's actually another human being that's there. If you want to check in, you could do a quick meditation or even just say, hey, I'm going to play some music. Just feeling like you're actually working with someone and if there's a need to have that sort of human companionship. And I think as what Jason says, being really really intentional about it. We do have to be intentional. I was on a podcast recently with Unplugged Meditation where I was a meditation teacher and Susie, who who runs the studio, she and I actually met at a college reunion several years ago. We were sitting next to each other on a bus, right? And that sort of connection hasn't been happening so much. So how can we create the conditions for coincidentally sitting next to someone on a bus and sparking a a new relationship? A Zoom breakout is ideal for that. It's random. Right. It sounds it's like we're ready. Like- sounds like we're ready for some tips. All right. So it's time for our. There's Kim speeding us along. Long line at the restroom, and she's got to go. So now it's time for a radical candor checklist. And these are tips you can use to start putting radical candor into practice. It is a practice. The practice is, of radical absolutely. candor. All right, Kim, over to you. So the first thing is what we started out this podcast talking about. You can do check-ins at the beginnings of meetings, especially if it's less than 10 10 people. Just like let people come in and say what's going on for them. This is both a great way to begin to... The more you know about someone, the more you care about them. So it's a great way to show you care personally, but it's also efficient. If somebody comes in scowling, Uh, A lot of time is wasted by everyone else on the meeting thinking, gosh, Kim is really pissed off. And I'm not scowl. I'm not uh, pissed off at any of you. I'm pissed off because my new puppy just pooped on the floor. And so give me a chance to say that and let it go. Another thing we can do is Zoom breakouts. Like that is a way better way than making people wait in a lunch line or or have tea if they don't want tea or, or have a long walk to the bathroom to create some sort of spontaneous, impromptu, unpredictable uh, uh, sort of exposure to one another. And there are actually some tools that help with this. So like plugins for Slack and uh, even some things that sit on top of Google Calendar. So we can share some of those in the show notes. Tip number two, have shorter, more frequent meetings with remote employees uh, than you would with in-person employees. And since you can't just pop into someone's cubicle or grab them after a meeting, you can use tools like Slack or, or texting them and just say, can we, can we chat? 
Tip number three, establish an environment of safety, of psychological safety, where people feel heard and acknowledged versus fearing that if they speak up, that somehow somehow you're going to punish them for that. But we're trying to establish both a sort of cognitive trust by being reliable, by demonstrating that we can be reliable, uh, as well as the emotional trust by showing that we care. And one of the best ways that leaders who are listening to this podcast can do this is to lead by example. So think about in that check-in, often people, you know, you might check in and everybody's like, oh, it's great. Everything's great. Uh, I think it can be really helpful for the leader to, to start by being real and say, you know, all things considered, it's good. But today was tough. Like for me, we started this call because last night, my, my puppy is sick and I spent a bunch of the night worrying uh, about how she was doing. And I think when we lead by example, we create an environment where people feel safer sharing what they really think. Tip four, be a thought partner rather than an absentee or a micromanager. To be a true thought partner with each of your team members, you really need to be involved, to listen with the intent to understand rather than respond, and to ask relevant questions it's important to be explicit in understanding what each of your team members needs from you. What does a thought partner look like for them? It might not look like what you think a thought partner looks like. Everybody needs something different. All right, tip number five. It's a five-tip week. Give people permission to heal from the trauma of the past 18 months and take care of themselves in whatever way works best for them. Don't just give them permission, encourage them. So for more tips, head to RadicalCandor.com backslash podcast. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And of course, don't forget to order Kim's new book, Just Work, Get Shit Done, Fast and Fair. It's available everywhere books, whether they're audio or read on a couch with a heating pad and an orange juice. They're available everywhere books are sold. Bye for now. Take care, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Our podcast features Radical Candor co-founders Kim Scott and Jason Rosoff, is produced by our director of content, Brandy Neal, and hosted by me, Amy Sandler. Music is by Cliff Goldmacher. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Candor and find us online at RadicalCandor.com. We'll see you soon.